Welcome to the Sparib Audio Zine. Sparib is a student-run feminist organization located at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. This is Tenzi Larohoni, written by Migwi Mwangi from the Devotion Edition, published Winter 2023. The piece was originally illustrated and page designed by Sarah Berman and Ramina Askarova, read by Migwi Mwangi. Special thanks to Dartmouth College Radio for lending Sparib their time and space, making this audiozine project possible. Tenzi Larohoni There was also that extraordinary Saturday. Caught in a downpour by the creek, Hadada covered little Munyake in a sisal sack carried him on her back all the way up the small hill. As she readied herself in her kitchen to fetch them, Ninawa Kafiro heard her dad's voice, bright as a Mogidi singer, fighting the sky, rain, rain, go away, Mabrigan, Mabrigan, number 28, I went for a walk on the break. Mounting the sooty sufuria of chai back into the fireplace, she blessed the rain for listening to her dada, for refusing to touch her grandchildren. Her dada, wet to the skin and her navy blue Detroit t-shirt, entered the muddy kitchen floor, breaking into a decent rage about the worn treads in Munyake's butter shoes. Easy as she had sat him, she lifted Munyake off the log of wood, Willed him round the smoky warmth of the rekindled fire like a little awe, declaring that he would sleep many more times in less slippery creeks when nobody, nobody at all would be watching, that many would love him, but only she would wipe his dusts because they were tied together at their navels. Her granddaughter's words, the authority of that register, stopped her heart. A desperate primrose ache clutching her chest, pressing it down like a disorder of veins. Hadada Wahu, who rarely said anything of length, like Hadasa the Queen, standing before her people with nothing to give but the promise of safety. Wordlessly, Ninawa Kafiro rose from her three-legged stool. She slowly engulfed Hadada with a green cardigan she unhung from her shoulders. She tightened her blue head wrap faced the dim-lit corner of her smoky kitchen. She bent forward, squinted her eyes, feeling for a Ramis milking jelly. When she found the small container, she reached for the milk bucket on the floor, swung it over her shoulders. Sometimes, for the people and things they connect us to, children name themselves. A single word from a child's open mouth, plucking the past from its grainy reservoir, reciting it huge as life. If possible, this is the miracle, identity and consciousness becoming winnowed preludes, sprouting from time's tectonic plates, parching with the steadiness of cauliflower to thread an ordinary life, an ordinary name, into something astounding. Rounding the corner of her kitchen in the rain, away from any eyes, Ninawa Kafiro began to weep. It was tactile, abiding, and without restraint, voice shattering into song. Years from now, when little Munyake was no longer at ease, so mobile in the air, 
before his chest was hairy as Nebuchadnezzar's. He would roll pages of his exercise books into thin flutes, chew tinier pieces of paper, and with a mischievous back tilt of the head, hurl spitballs through the vacuum. Rooted at that very spot, Ninawa Kafiro would see him running away in bigger russet shorts, joyous and mighty as a chief, before suddenly pausing to marvel at a shape in the clouds with such deep tenderness. Hadatha too, they were often too lost in another world to be helpful, pressing charcoal on doors, marking math formulas, illegible polymorphs of usikojoy hopper, trying to crack macadamias on each other's skulls, flattening weeds and topsoil, chasing each other around the farmlands, twisting left and right, water pumps trapped their backs, sparking firestones to find their next projects. Was there so very much in Lycipia to get to? When she found the weathered sisal rope she used to fetch water from the well, hanging from the mukidori tree, her one nice sofa pillow braided into its thin biting edges, softening it into a seated swing, it surprised her how dizzyingly fast her hot, humid air fizzed into a fuzziness and slipped away. In their newfound powers of mischief, an elusive something pleased her. Monyakei, licking his wrists to dam the flow of soup lines down his arm. Hadada, scattering the band pile to throw an aerosol can directly into the fire pit. Her calm retreat back into the house after confirming her grandchildren, the village and the world were all still standing after the explosion. Grandparented, Ninawaka Firo had come to learn, was a series of deeper baptisms of her co-authored organizing principles, probing her depths with stranger and more intimate questions that demanded silence as much as response. There were no big arrows hanging like grapes, pointing to the direction of her grandchildren's lives, certainly not in the city, where she feared most for their survival, praying for their faded lives to steer clear of the spotlight where the old gods were dead and evil invaded in boots of lead. There were moments, however, when Hadada's and Munyake's safety, necessary as it was, did not register as full victory. She wanted more for them that she couldn't name. Perhaps she wanted for them the sweet caress of Fanta Citrus bought without haggles, tins of jasmine tea tinged with a Givenchy aftertaste of hard-earned copper pennies, to walk their dog Bosco, who they sometimes call Gerald, melted chocobars in hand around the estate without losing their legs. Perhaps she desired that Nairobi, the city that barely looked at her, only in passing and always below eye level, would look upon them and their reckless rebellions as deserving equal peers. What happened to her could not happen to them, and what did not happen for her would happen for them in spaces where they could breathe this amphibious, surreal possibility of risk and untrapping respect for quiet, safe lives. 
wherever the city, the country was, they would meet the arena, all of it. This was what she knew for them. This was their air of blood, sawdust to gather and scatter across their paths as needed. Ninawaka Firo needed time, more time to teach them the ways of the world before her own failing body was grounded. For when she held her cheeks to her palms and measured the fidelity in her bones, the scales shivered, the sugar burned, the moon entered. Dagetari had assured her that her heart was fine, but what she knew true for her body, baited her pillows, flashed hollow indigo triangles in her bones. In her younger years of golden age, when she had detested being referred to as Mukuro, voicing her disapproval at each mention of the eldest title, she had sought to untangle their adventures but every time she made to trim their horns that they might have needed in the city, a voice in her head said, This voice, such a demand, filled her pockets with restraint and with it, questions of complicity. She had dealt with, their, she had dealt with Kafiro, their father, and his youth with a stern clarity that had fogged out over the years. Was it because Kafiro was an only child that she had often been beige and abrupt with him in childhood? Munyake and her daughters was a long, novel marriage where they had become part of each other's breathing, part of each other's chamber music. If this was a product of Kafiro's parenting, surely it was her pre-parenting that is out praise. Was he capable of seeing this through the damp veil of his sobbing school? how he rarely came home from the city, save for trips to drop off her grandchildren on the holidays, always with numerous instructions through his crooked teeth to feed them the dust of Witterbix and conflict cereals, not pounded yam and sweet potato. Guy, Asha Mami, Ihi, eh? No one uses nappies anymore, uses pampas diapers. Was it not those cotton nappies that held him before he got his fancy corporate cubicle at Price Waterhouse Coopers? Did impounded yam strengthen him to randaranda all of Lycipia before he became well-willed in his green pajero that now made him restless at the first sign of rain? Was it not her doing of everything she thought reasonable to her at the time that led him straight to those bright, new-age, postpartum masterclasses? Was it not mercy? There were moments, in the briefness of the interactions, when she physically felt her presence offended him. Was it in fact so? She had watched how difficult it was for her close grandchildren, yodeling language to stitch together. Guy, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean kukumiza. I'm really sorry. Sawa. Pole? For their numerous squabbles that often started as reminding the other what they forgot, Ninawa Kafiro felt those apologies thin and impossible as tropical teneriffs. How they believed that if they just explained, if they just told the truth, the other was going to understand. Perhaps there was something wholesale in the anger of a child to learn from. Something wise beyond the present, 
to lead her, shovel by shovel, into the courage of doubt. None of that resistance held now. The brushwork of time had visited her with geriatric cruelties that crushed her with kindness, landscaped her ears to hard of hearing so that she saw her other's marvels of her grey hairs, her laments of how brittle her Jurea Kimira was, to be love, tangled her back that she was no longer able to give chaste mischief, head start or ironed walls to disobedience flooded her eyes with cataracts that she chose to hear Munyake's passion requests to use eye pencil on her head, strand by strand, until her curls were again a rich black as a child's blessing for a long, colorful life. All of these, like the sugar work of wet, wild gooseberries, were fantastic engulfing arguments for living through the wet sand for the next verse kept like a staying thing for the waiting ones. <laughs>